there's never been a better time to find out why BetMGM is the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app and place a $10 money line wager on any NBA playoff game. If either team hits a three-pointer in the game, you'll win $200 in free bets. Just use code CHAMPION200 when you make your first bet. Sign up now and discover BetMGM's daily promotions, boosted odds specials, and more. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if either team hits a three in any NBA playoff game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. How have you been? Well, I've been enjoying the sunshine and everything that all the delights New Zealand has to offer. Someone who did, or some people who did decide to visit these shores and unfortunately didn't leave under their duress. Who were these people? Who are we covering today? We are covering today the disappearance and murder of Heidi Pakonen and Urban Hoglin a couple of Swedish tourists who uh, traveled to New Zealand in 1988 and unfortunately met their untimely demise in these same shores. Some some shade, some discrepancies and questions have arisen from the handling of the case. Heidi Pakonen was born the 14th of October of 1966. She had four siblings, she being the only woman in her family, and she was born and lived most of her life in Storfords, a small town that is about 225 kilometers from Stockholm, the capital of Sweden. Heidi aspired to become a kindergarten teacher, but at the age of 21, she decided to take off in a gap year with her 23 year old fiance Urban Hoglin. Urban uh, Hoglin was born on the 2nd of December 1965, also from Strofas. Uh, he was the youngest of four siblings and came from a family of athletes, and even one of his brothers was an Olympic medalist who won a gold medal for skating in the 1968 Winter Olympics in France. Also worked in supermarket um, in Stoffos with uh, Heidi, and that's obviously where they met. And they got engaged in September of 1986. I think they were on a trip in the Greek islands. Mm. They were on the trip, and they both got personalized engagement rings, each one bearing the name of their partner on the inside, which seems like a anecdotal detail, but it will become something significant. 
later on. So uh, before their wedding, they, like I said, they decided to uh, take a gap year and they were destined to go to the United States, then Australia, and finally end their trip in New Zealand. Both Urban and Heidi were enthusiastic, were outdoor enthusiastic. And Urban was especially interested in hiking and fishing. His brother, Stefan, would uh, later, um, well, give some information about how experienced they mm, were in the outdoors. Yeah, uh, Stefan uh, is quoted in saying, uh, I used to go fishing with Urban. We would spend the night out and sometimes up to 10 days in a row. On these longer trips, we took backpacks and sometimes canoes, and we would travel up to 60 kilometers from any civilization. So they were well and truly experienced yes. hikers, outdoors people, trampers, as they say here in New Zealand. Um, and you know, the nature in Sweden is actually kind of more dangerous than in New Zealand because you actually have some predators, mm-hmm. animals like wolves and bears, and bears which yeah. we luckily don't get to have here. The yeah. nature in New Zealand, well, the animals at least, I would say that they are quite Mm-hmm. Although so, I think the most dangerous you'd get would be uh, wild boars, yeah, which are introduced. Very important to make clear that they weren't amateurs mm-hmm. in outdoors yeah, activities. They were well and truly versed in uh, in outdoors survival and uh, how to handle yourself, how to go in making sure you're prepared, mm-hmm. which seems to be a, a common problem with a lot of people who get lost and fall into trouble in the outdoors. This was definitely not them. The couple left Sweden on Friday the 16th of September of 1988. Two days later, they arrived to Brisbane in Australia and spent a couple of months, well, until Weeks. December. Yeah, because they, they got to oh, New yeah. Zealand on December. Yes. They will document their travels around the world by sending letters to their family in Sweden and their experience in Australia, your Home country, Greece, wasn't the best. No, unfortunately. Um, They were in Queensland Mm -hmm. and unfortunately Urban contracted uh, some form of infection and was not well, having 41 degree fevers and lost around six kilograms of body weight. The illness did caused them to extend their stay in Australia for a couple more weeks. And then after Urban did recover, that's when they arrived in Auckland on, in New Zealand on December the 5th in oh. 1988. I also read that Heidi uh, had a close encounter with a snake. Mm. Couldn't find whether it was venomous or not, but they were actually a bit afraid after mm. their experience in Australia. Mm. Some yeah. say that anything can kill you in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> well, if there's a strong chance if that it was poisonous, if it was in Australia, to be honest. They would also say in one of their letters that most people they found in the hostels were kind of sketchy or drunks, but uh, they didn't yeah. have so much fun. Yeah. So they arrived to Auckland, mm-hmm. like we said, like you said, on December. They stayed in Auckland for a couple of days and they bought a car, a 1976 white Subaru, and they were ready to start their travels around. On a letter dated the 6th of January, Heidi wrote the following quote. New Zealand is a really beautiful country. 
I don't know if you, ma'am, will really enjoy the roads here. Some are narrow, curvy, and steep. In North Iceland, we had had rainy weather for a week. There has been a real storm in Auckland, so they were forced to close the roads. Roads. We managed to get out of Auckland just before it started. Otherwise, we would have been stuck there for a few may, few days more. Sorry if this letter is a little messy and folded because it is very windy. Most of it probably due to sand gnats. These are the only animals that really harass us. Do not think of snakes or spider, spiders or other dangerous animals or plants. And that's nice. Now we're going to build a fire and see if we can have fried fish for dinner. So, in mid-January, Huban and Heidi were finally able to do some hiking. Heidi describes in a letter to home the intensity of these expeditions. 26th of January, 1989, Kaukura. Maybe I told you in the last letter that we were going on an excursion with a Canadian couple. We started on Friday the 13th. The first night, we did not arrive at a cabin, but had to sleep on a large rock that it was leaning a bit. Ron and Sharon had a tent that they could put up anywhere, so they slept in it. The next day, we moved on. We had to climb, or rather, we had to pull ourselves through small bushes and grass to the mountain, which was about 1,500 meters away. It was very hard, and in some places it was soaked, and there were rivers you could fall into. Urban shoes and mine started to fall apart, so we were a little worried that they would not last all the way. In the end, they told us we had made one of the toughest hikes in New Zealand. We did it all in one week with heavy backpacks on our backs and we calculated the total distance to be about 85 kilometers. I couldn't imagine yeah. to, to do such an immense hike, uh, even less being so confident Mm. to be capable to sleep in the outdoors. Just mm-hmm. uh, But I think this just goes to show mm-hmm. their experience and the fact that they were able to come through it and have the knowledge that they would need to turn back if their shoes fell apart. They weren't just going to blindly stumble through it without thinking ahead. Certainly. So they were absolutely, I think, goes to show experienced and knowledgeable and careful. Not They weren't going to take stupid risks. Yeah. I think this sort of attitude goes to show and you know a lot of a lot of people in in the Scandinavian countries have very strong hiking, camping, outdoors, hunting, fishing, tramping cultures and that they celebrate and a, a lot of the population take part in it and have cursory to a pretty experienced uh, knowledge about this sort of thing which I think this just, you know this mm-hmm. this just goes to show they would also write about how uh, loving and welcoming they found the yeah. average Kiwi to be. And um, yes, we could, guess mm. we could say we could agree on that. Yeah. Kiwis are uh, most of the times uh, yeah, very welcoming, welcoming and, and helpful. We mean the person, not the bird. Yes. Mm. Would you like to read it? All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> at the beginning of March, Heidi here writes a very loving letter about the welcoming nature of the New Zealand people. March the 11th, 1989, from Nelson. We have, we have been to Punakaiki, where you can see some cliff rocks shaped like pancakes on top of each other. It was a beautiful and amazing nature. We decided to visit a guy Urban met on an excursion fishing in Australia. He invited us to spend the night at his house. 
It's amazing that he trusted us and gave us a key and let us hang out here alone. When they invite you to spend the night and you say no, they can't understand it and they seem to think you're rude. It's obvious to them that you should say yes and you should feel at home. If it wasn't for all those mosquitoes and wasps, New Zealand would be the perfect country. Almost, anyway. In hindsight, it's kind of sad. Mm. But uh, really, the personal experience that a human may have in one or another country shouldn't be taken as a proof or evidence for the character of a whole nation. whole nation. Yeah, no, that's absolutely we spot can. on. We, we must agree mm. on that, first off. Yeah. While waiting for the Picton ferry to sail back to the North Island, uh, Urban wrote a letter to inform uh, his family for, of their plans to return home. March 16, 1989, Picton wrote, On April 20, we will go to the Cook Island, where we will stay for two weeks, then four days in Tahiti and one day in Los Angeles. We estimated that we will be home on May 7, so as not to lose lost the big party. Send our love to the family. We hope all is well with all of you. On Friday, the 7th of April, Urban and Heidi sent their last letter home. To get ready before heading, heading to the airport, or heading back to Auckland, because at this moment they are staying in Thames, a small uh, town in the Coromandel Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Heidi and Urban stopped by a local hair salon to get a haircut. The manager, Marilyn Round, and her 16-year-old employee, Paula Johnson, were the only ones in the store, and they gave their testimony of cutting Heidi's and Urban's hair. And this would be the last confirmed sighting of the couple alive, or at least the, one of the most believable witnesses, since they got actually close contact and they actually got to speak with the couple. On the very same day, Heidi wrote a letter. We are right now on a peninsula called Coromandel, located a little south of Auckland. We only have 14 days left here in New Zealand. Here in Coromandel, there are a lot of beautiful beaches and the weather is really nice. There is a lot to do on the beach. We are often alone, so there are no crowds. The campsite had its own thermal pools and it was quite nice to sink in the pool at, at night with all the stars in the sky above us. So with this in mind, the families of Heidi and Urban didn't anticipate their return until around May the 7th. However, the disappearance of the couple was not reported until several weeks later. The New Zealand Herald publishing a front-page story on Friday, May the 26th, in 1989 with the following headline. A car belonging to a missing Swedish couple has been abandoned in Mount Eden in Auckland for six weeks. The discovery worries Auckland police who were contacted by Interpol agents on Wednesday following a request from relatives. Some personal items were found in a car and one of those included the plane tickets that uh, the couple had for the Cook Islands on the 20th of May, a New Zealand police contacted Air New Zealand and confirmed that they never took their flight. Mm. When the last letter of the couple arrived to Sweden, the disappearance of the couple had already been confirmed. The night of Friday, the 26th of May, the New Zealand police created a special task group named 
Operation Stockholm with the aim of finding Heidi and Urban. At this point, I am guessing they were already they were expecting to find them find them alive. Mm. That very night, Operation Stockholm already had a lead on the case of the missing couple. Mm-hmm. That's right. A local farmer, Edward Colbert, who owned property in Tararo Creek on the Coromandel Peninsula, he indicated that he found a name tag hanging from a piece of wire on his farm as if it, as if it had been ripped from a garment. On the label was Heidi Pakonen, but... At the time, the name didn't mean anything to him, so he just dropped it on the ground. So when news of the couple's disappearance, <clears throat> so when news of the couple's disappearance broke in late May, Colbert ventured back to see if he could locate the object. Uh, so not only did he locate the name tag, but he discovered discarded clothing, men's and women's. Then Colbert approached the Thames police, which is where uh, Heidi and Urban had been. Mm-hmm. That's where they, they had their haircut. Uh, Cobert's initial testimony was later found to have been inaccurate. While he had discovered Heidi and Urban's possessions, he would have found the woman's name tag while rummaging through the contents of the backpack that he had discovered near the property. So we have a, a piece of physical evidence that might have been tainted. We could guess... And I'm going to guess because we didn't get much information about Edward Colbert, not in bad fate. No. He probably found the backpack and checked it and thought, oh, a hiker lost it or a wild pig, yeah. ragged, whatever. And when the news came, he actually realized that it was something more important. Mm. We had found clothes on Tararo Creek, mm-hmm. which is a couple of kilometers north of Thames on Sunday, May 28th. Approximately 30 police officers and several search and rescue volunteers started uh, well, a search around the area where Heidi's name tag had been found. They were not only looking for the missing couple, but also looking for the tent and the camping their, gear. Yeah. Their camping gear, exactly. Anything that would indicate them, passports, mm-hmm. their wallets, that sort of thing. The search was carried exhaustively and nothing of greater interest was recovered. The next day, an agent of Operation Stockholm announced to the media that this was definitely a murder investigation. The same Monday, the Thames police began what is called an area service, which is basically the police going, knocking door on door or in every store, trying mm-hmm. to get uh, to find a witness that has seen uh, the missing couple mm-hmm. or had any sort of information about them. Mm. And they found themselves with uh, the hairstylist Meryl Round and Paula Johnson, whom uh, claimed to have cut the sweet's hairs on April the 7th at around 12.30 p.m. Also, more locals soon started turning up and volunteering their testimony to about seeing uh, the white Subaru car the couple was driving. And two days after the hair salon appointment, Harry Goodman was driving down the Tararo Creek Road on Sunday, April the 9th, with some friends when he spotted the Subaru on a road shoulder. He saw a for sale sign on the real rear windshield. He also indicated that he was surprised by the number of objects inside the car because there was no one in it and it would have been very easy to break into. In the front seat, he saw at least one camera and two or three backpacks of the kind used for hiking in the back of the car. And this is around 5 p.m. 
The next uh, sighting, confirmed sighting of the couple's car, not uh, of Heidi and Urban, was on the 14th of April in Auckland, actually. Auckland police would, some agents would uh, later said that they saw four men driving a white Subaru on the night of the 14th of April in Auckland. Police in that moment consulted the vehicle's registration, which resulted in no vehicle of interest, because the car was never... Had not been reported stolen by that point. Are there any specific dangers that people could uh, found themselves or special risk among the Coromandel Peninsula? There, well, actually, there were many, many different risks. So when a second search of the trail began on Wednesday, May the 31st, the search and rescue coordinator, John Cassidy, informed the more than 80 volunteers that the route did indeed present many dangers. Among them were old abandoned mine shafts from the Gold Rush era, which is in the 1870s, um, among the natural dangers, as well as the natural dangers, which you know, obviously included steep cliffs, ravines, footfalls, just the regular regular dangers found on a on an intense hiking trail. And a clue was found among that time, but not as a result of the search but by a statement made from John Cassidy, who was the search and rescue coordinator. John Cassidy would tell to the senior detective that was in charge of the Operation Stockholm, John Hughes, that on April the 8th of that same year, Cassidy was hiking with a friend, Mel Knauf, and they had been walking for several hours when they came across a man and a woman around Crosby's Clearing, which is um, yes another trail that is farther north from Thames and Dararo Creek. The original statement from uh, John Cassidy was, quote, The couple had a tent and indicated that they intended to spend the night there. In fact, the man set up the tent while we were talking to them. They said they had just arrived on foot from the Dararu Creek Road. The guy seemed to be familiar with the area from the way he spoke, because we explained that where we came from and he seemed to understand. They pointed out that they were from the Auckland area. The guy was in his 30s. It was partly Maori, he was about 5 feet tall, had a strong build, had black hair and was clean-shaven, although he might have had a moustache. He wore boots of some sort, jean shorts and I think a dark top. The girl with him was in her 20s or 30s, European-looking and had neck-length neck light blonde hair. She was sitting in a log on, on, or something when we arrived and she didn't get up or actually said anything while we were there. She had a fair complexion and well-groomed appearance to the point that it seemed out of place in the bush setting. The tent the man was setting up was a bright blue hiking tent with a stitched floor and matching blue top. Obviously, he already had experience in setting up his tent. From the conversation we had, I think the couple intended to go back to Tararu Creek Road the same day, the same way they had come up, because I suppose they had left their car there. John Cassidy and Mel Nauf identifying a Maori-looking man with a European-looking woman. Mm -hmm. And this statement would become a 
BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MLB. MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire 7 days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. DoorDash helps you make cash fast. All you need is your bike and a smartphone. The sign-up process is super quick and easy. Now you get to choose your own hours and be your own boss. And best of all, you get to keep 100% of your tips. Download the DoorDash driver app today to get started. Important piece in the trial mm. for the couple's disappearance, but not for the good reasons. Mm. In this initial statement, neither Cassidy or his friend Melnau identify the European woman or the European-looking woman as Heidi Bakonen. Mm. However, the police soon issued a public statement urging this couple to come forward. Uh, for good reasons, probably, because they were also hiking around the same area mm. and the Coromandel Peninsula, it's quite bushy, it's quite wild, so mm. it's not a highly populated. So the chances of this couple knowing anything would have been good or at least a possibility. Also on June the 2nd, Jason Donald, who was a 16-year-old student at the time, approached the police with some information. In mid-March, Donald was walking near Crosby's clearing when he came across a camping tent. When he came closer, he found a note that said, I'm tired of waiting for you, so I've gone for a walk and I'll see you tonight or tomorrow. If anyone finds this tent, don't destroy it, because it's all I have. Signed, Pat Kelly. Dun, dun, dun. So who is this man, Pat Kelly? By the end of June of 1989, Peter Svensson, a Swedish journalist, uh, was covering uh, the disappearance of uh, Urban and Hoyle in New Zealand. Svensson was contacted by a reader, another Swedish traveller named Hakan Bokul, whom claimed to have information about the case. Spenson advised Bokul to, well, contact the New Zealand police, and then Hakan would state that he was on Thames on April the 9th. He was staying at the Sunkist Hotel, where he met a man whom offered to give him and two of his friends arrived through the Coromandel region. Hakan Bokul friends were one Canadian tourist and another Swedish tourist. They were both uh, women. In return, Bokul would pay to this man for the gas and his room for the night in the hostel. This mysterious man, if you wish, called himself Pat. Hakan would describe Pat as, quote, he was about 30 or 35 years old about my height, that is uh, a meter and 80 centimeters, maybe a little less. Dark brown hair, almost 
black, almost black. A little dis disheveled, disheveled but not messy. Thick hair, big bushy mustache that curved over the corners of his mouth. Mentally, he didn't see temperamental or depressed or overly happy or anything like that. Rather normal, I would say. I found him quite nice as we traveled around the bay. Bokul indicated that they took the ride that Pat offered in a white Subaru with bull bars in the front. That was a detail that we forgot to say. That's how the white Subaru that Heidi and Urban had bought. Hakan would also indicate that there was no luggage in the car, that there was only a bucket with a telescopic rod and a fishing line. With all this new information, the police contacted the Sankist hostel. They were able to verify, indeed, that there was a travel, traveler, Hakan Bokul, that stayed there from April the 9th to the 12th. They also found a guest registered on April the 10th with the name Pat Kelly. Other travelers uh, who, who stay at the hotel give their testimony, and Pat, one of those whom describe him as a male Caucasian, 35 years old, dark complexion, black hair with a mustache, five foot eight inches. Thank you. Tall, medium build, and very friendly. A phone number was listed in the check-in under the name Pat Kelly, or I'm not sure about this fact, mm. I also read that he had made a call, Pat Kelly had made a call, oh. so police discovered that that number was a property landline in Oakland. Unfortunately, a new guest had recently moved to the property before the events of June 1986, mm. before the disappearance of Heidi and Urban, but the police were able to contact and found the former owners of the house for the previous tenants the, the previous tenants a couple named Christine and David Tamiheri the main suspect mm. some might argue responsible for the disappearance of the couple what can you tell me about David Wayne Tamiheri well David Tamiheri was born in 1954. One of 12 children, his family had Maori ancestral lands on the Coromandel Peninsula. After having problems at school, he left to work in construction and in the steel industry. At the age of 19, in 1972, Tamiheri killed Mary Bartram, a 23-year-old exotic dancer. He did this by hitting her with a butt of an air rifle. According to David, the death was an accident. He says, I thought she had set me up with her boss. I went to get the rifle and turned to get to the door, but the gun hit her in the head and I fired. That was accidental rather than deliberate. He spent two years in prison for the murder. Upon release from prison, Tamahiri continued to work in the steel industry. Then in 1981, Tamahiri met his partner, Christine, and the and they had two children together. Then in 1985, Tamahiri entered the home of a 62-year-old woman in Avondale, Auckland. There he tied her up and sexually abused her. Tamahiri spoke about the Avondale crime later to the journalist Caroline Mengyi, saying, it was, the worst, it was the worst crime I ever committed. I went three years without being sober. It was a bad crime and she didn't deserve it. It's something I'm not proud of. Yet, on 1986, David re-entered the home of a 47-year-old woman 
in Oakland the same way. And in a six-hour ordeal, he sexually abused this woman, tied her up, and threatened to kill her. David confessed to the 1986 burglary and rape, and he later on... Okay, so he was caught for the second uh, rape that he committed, and, well, being... I am guessing why he was being investigated for mm -hmm. that crime. He confessed to the crime that he committed uh, the year before. Yeah. While awaiting the sentence on bail, he made the, the questionable uh, decision to flee, to mm -hmm. avoid going to jail. Damiheri took refuge in the Coromandel bush, and it's around this time in which he began using the pseudonym Bad Kelly. He lived for a fact for three years until he returned uh, to Auckland to live. Uh, on May 24th of 1989, the same day Heidi and Urban were reported missing, a police officer saw Pat wandering the streets of Auckland, recognized him as David Tamiheri, and knowing he was fleeing bail, stopped him immediately. So when um, the police actually has the leads of Pat Kelly, mm. he, uh, well, David Tamiheri, his real name, he was already in jail. Now, the two detectives visited mm -hmm. Christine Tamiheri on her Avondale property. Christine asked what this was about, and the detectives, and the detectives responded. It was just a routine investigation. As Detective Brown was saying this, something caught his eye. It says, a green jacket sitting on the chair. As Detective Brown was saying this, something caught his eye. A green jacket sitting on a chair, which he claims to have immediately recognised as one of Heidi or Urban's possessions. When Brown asked about the jacket, Christine replied that David had recently brought it home and given it to one of the sons. In an other questioning about David Tamahiri, Christine describes him as a very caring person, as long as he wasn't drunk. As Detective Brown wrote this report, he says, I questioned Christine as to why she'd stayed with David for so many years, knowing the crimes he'd committed. And she indicated that he was a totally different person when he drank, and that she had learned to stay away from him when he was drunk. So David, what can we say about him? He had a conviction for murder. It was a um, trial uh, turned out to considered as a manslaughter, not as he had intentionally murdered this uh, exotic dancer, as you said, this sex worker, which I don't really buy. Mm. Just because of the crimes he committed before, I have a very strong hunch that uh, he's one of those men that is not very fond of women, mm. since he also committed two rapes. So for the police at this point, he's a very good suspect. Mm. I have to give them that. But probably see what happens before. Yeah. Armed with this first suspect, Huge, John Huge, the senior detective in charge of the Operation Stockholm, and three of his, uh, well, companions, paid a visit to Demi Harry, who was at his uh, Mount Eden prison cell, the maximum security. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is nowadays, so I am guessing that it was already in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So we are going to read some excerpts of the official mm -hmm. interview. Um, we're skipping uh, some parts. We are paraphrasing some parts, but the essential it's in there. So I'll be taking <laughs> part of the police. <laughs> okay, so and I, I, I'm the um, I'm the clear here. So police, 
So before we picked you up in May in Auckland, where were you staying? Around Waki, Coromanda. I walked all over the mountain and around it. On your own? Yes. I was at the backpacker hostel for a couple of days. When was the last time you were at Crosby's Clearing? Sometime in April. Was there anyone else with you? No, I had a blue tent for two people. Did you buy or steal the blue tent? I stole it when I got out of bail. Do you remember leaving a note in the tent? Yes, to say that I was going to look for it again. Did you put your name on it? Yes, Pat Kelly. Did you get into a white Subaru in Thames? No. Did you give your son a wet weather jacket? Yes, it was in a cardboard box. Just the jacket? Yes. There was also some food. I think there were some small binoculars in a zipper bag, green. Where are they? At home. Is that all you found? Yes. Are you sure? Oh, yeah. There were also two backpacks. Where? Next to the cardboard box. In the box? What did you do with them? I sold them at a pound shop. After a short lunch break, the questioning? No, it's... Yeah, the questioning. The interrogation. Yeah. When the cops came back, uh, David, unsurprisingly, returned with a confession. David would then admit to have stolen the white Subaru that happened to belong to Heidi and Urban. David uh, recounted his actions, uh, the actions that led him to take possession of the vehicle. He would claim that he was hiking on April the 10th around Crosby's clearing and... His tent was found, so that's probably true. But then he got at the beginning of the track when he found a white Subaru wagon filled with campaigning gear and a camera. David felt the exhaust pipe and noticed that it was warm, not hot, so he assumed that whoever owned the car had been... Been there a while ago. A while ago. He used a nearby number eight wire to open the door handle of the car. When he searched the vehicle, he found a set of keys in the glove compartment. Now with his new vehicle, uh, David uh, headed to the Sunkist Backpacker Hostel, where he registered as Pat Haley, his pseudonym on the run. At this shelter, he overheard three fellow travelers, two Swedes and one Canadian, that is Hakan Bokul and his friends, mm-hmm. that were complaining for not being able uh, to do a tour on the peninsula and quickly offered them a road trip in exchange for the gas and the $12 he had to pay for uh, sleeping in the hostel. The next day, they took a tiki tour around the Coromandel Peninsula and one of the Swiss, uh, not Swede, uh, tourists, not Hakan, but the other woman, told him that, he, that she needed a ride to Auckland and he offered her a drive there because he was heading back to mm. his home anyhow. He dropped her off at the hostel near the Auckland Hospital. Then he drove to a train station where he abandoned the car and returned the keys in the compartment. He also took the belongings that were in the car already two backpacks, the binoculars, the jacket that he later gave to one of his sons, and he pawned the rest of the equipment for uh, $100. This was his initial statement, and at this point the police doesn't quite buy 
that he claims not to have any involvement with the couple's disappearance. Mm. And now the the questioning becomes a bit more spicy, if mm. you wish. Do you yes. want to play the police again? I shall. Well, Dave, you must have some really big balls. The guy has just been on the run for two to three years, steals a car and then drives it around the area for a day or so. How do you know they wouldn't have caught you? The owners could have come straight out after you, grabbed it, and then reported the theft. I had the property papers. I've done it before. I once stole a car that had the ownership's paper on it. When the police stopped me, I showed them to them, and I just said that I had called and told the police that I had found it. They believed me, and I got away with it. Well, Dave, I'm telling you the reason you knew the car wasn't going to be reported stolen is that you ran into the people and have done them. No way. I had nothing to do with it. If you want to accuse me, accuse me. Yeah, but Dave, you knew the car wasn't going to be reported stolen, right? Look, I stole the car. I've never seen them or done anything to them. I don't know anything else about it. I stole the car, and that's it. So, since he confessed to the theft of the car, David Tamiheri was charged with stealing the Swedish couple vehicle and stealing its contents. On July 12th, Tamihiri briefly appeared in court, and New Zealand was able to see the quote-unquote suspect for the first time. He would have to appear in court again a couple of weeks later. And this is where things get tricky, because the police would uh, contact John Cassidy and Mel Knauf again. Mm. Let's remember, they claim to have seen an European-looking woman with a Maori-looking man in Crosby's clearing. And this is actually something that goes against protocol, I believe. They ask John Cassidy and Mel Knauf to go to court when Tammy Harry was uh, was being on trial for this for the theft of the car, just for them to check mm-hmm. whether this man was the man that they have seen before. And at this point, uh, well, Melnauf and John Cassidy went to see Tammy uh, Harry to get a look at the suspect. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, Cassidy changed his uh, statement or mm-hmm. he updated his statement. Mm-hmm. Do you want to read it? During the weekend of July the 22nd and 23rd in 1989, Inspector John Hughes asked me to come to the Thames District Court at around 10am on Wednesday, July the 26th. Inspector Hughes asked me to look at the people there and see if I could identify the person who had seen at Crosby's clearing. I knew David Tamihiri was going to appear in court in connection with the Swedish investigation. Having seen Tamihiri, I am sure he is the male person I met at Crosby's Clearing at the afternoon of April 8th. Mel Naff, who was also accompanying Cassidy that day, also changed his statement, but only after being questioned twice more by the police. His final testimony, which reached the trial by the couple's crime, was following. In the Thames Court, I observed a person that I now know as David Tamahiri. I saw this person three times and was able to conclude that David Tamahiri was the same person that both I and John Cassidy had spoken to at Crosby's settlement area on April 8th. After seeing the person, I'm 90% sure it was the man from Crosby's. 
So there's a lot of stuff that uh, it's a contradiction, really, in this statement. Mm -hmm. One a key fact would be the mustache mm -hmm. of uh, David Tamiheri. Yet neither of them, John Cassidy, neither John Cassidy or Melnoff, would confirm that this blonde woman that was seen with the man they saw across with clearing was Katie. Nauf also stated that he couldn't remember that the man that he had seen had a mustache. The man that he claims was uh, David Tamiheri, which is uh, a direct contradiction with the witness of Hakam Bokul, the sweet uh, tourist, mm -hmm. and the other tourist that saw David Tamiheri in the Sunskin Hotel. They will see that he had a big gringo-like mustache and in the pictures when he's arrested you can see he has the same mm. which you used to wear how do you call that mustache a big, well horseshoe possibly a handlebar mustache handlebar that being said it should be noticed and this is something that we have learned very recently that the veracity of ai witness is in fact a bit flimsy several psychological studies indicate that incorrect identification by eyewitnesses are much more common than is uh, believed. To quote one study, according to the American Association of Psychology, indicated that one in three identifications made by eyewitnesses turned out to be wrong. Quote, eyewitness testimony is very powerful and convincing to juries, even if it is not particularly reliable. Identification errors do occur, and these errors can lead to people being falsely accused and even convicted. Likewise, memory of eyewitnesses can be corrupted by leading question, misinterpretation of events, conversations with other witnesses, and their own expectations about what should have happened. People may even remember entire events that never happened. We have to mention that the police allowed Mel Nauf and John Cassidy to compare their own uh, statements, which mm. is a completely no-no. Yes. And the fact that they were invited to the court trial, yeah, to exactly. the, yeah, the court hearing, to view the accused rather than doing an official lineup or yeah. a, a photographic uh, pick-out uh, session. Exactly. And the fact that actually Melnov changed his uh, statement after being interrogated in three occasions by the police. Mm. So there's a bit of... Um, wouldn't say that this man uh, intentionally tried to frame Tammy Harry. He had been probably led by the police. Mm. Possibly led. Possibly led. Well, a good example of uh, witnesses uh, giving... Uh, eyewitnesses giving contradictory uh, statements. I mean, another example that we can give uh, that happened in this case, in the suites in uh, David and Mihiri trials, is that um, Ed Colbert, one of the witnesses that said that saw the white Subaru that belonged to Haiti and Urban, said that he had read uh, in the car the price of $2,500. Another witness, Harry Goodwin, whom we already mentioned, mm -hmm. said that he had read $2,995. And a third witness, Jennifer Gladwin, indicated that the police, to the police that the price of the vehicle was $2,200. Uh, $2, 2, 2, 2, 2, 
and we are just talking about numbers. We are not even mm-hmm. talking about people, and we shouldn't forget about the bias and well, the racial profiling. Mm-hmm. Because at at this moment, the only thing that John Cassidy and May Nuff uh, were agreed before they saw Tammy Harry is that they saw a woman that looked European and a man that looked part Maori, and David Tammy Harry is Maori, mm-hmm. indeed. So. Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MLB game and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500 Hello, Discover here to explain our cash back match. Here's how it works. We give you cash back for using your Discover card on the things you were going to buy anyway. Then we match that cash back in your first year. And that's why we call it cash back match. Now to recap and say cash back one more time. We match all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. Discover, exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. With their statements, will Cassidy and Now's statement claim to recognize, once Cassidy and May Now claim to recognize David Tamiheri as the man who was in Crossus Clearing, he was officially charged with double murder. The trial began on October 1990. The Crown, which is how uh, the state it's called in New Zealand, or whom were prosecuting, presented its evidence. One was uh, Tammy Harry's relationship with the Swedes' belongings, including their car and his blatant use of a stolen vehicle. His second very... uh, piece of evidence was the statement of John Cassidy and uh, Mel Knauf. And three, the smoking gun, for the ground mm-hmm. at least, were three secret witnesses. Secret witnesses A, B and C. So who were these witnesses? Well, these secret witnesses were Tamahiri's fellow prisoners at this time in incarceration. And they claimed that he mentioned and confessed to them in prison to the murders of Irvin Heidi. Secret witness A was in jail on various drug trafficking charges, specifically associating, specifically relating to heroin. Witness A took the stand, claiming that David had confessed to the double murder when they were in adjoining cells at the Mount Eden Maximum Security Prison, less than 24 hours after being charged with the theft of the Swede's vehicle. Right, so we should just say that as a further warning to those sensitive, their secret witness testimonies are quite graphic. We're adding a trigger warning for sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and murder. Witness A's testimony is as follows. David said... He met them on the Saturday in the bush. He said that they met on the road. 
After exchanging greetings, he said that they were very friendly. It was then that they agreed to let Dave and his companions act as their guides. It was then that they told Dave that the car was parked on the road. I asked him, when were they attacked and raped? And he said it was on the Saturday afternoon in the bush. I asked him how he'd he located the girl with her boyfriend there. He told me that the boyfriend was tied up, that his companions with him He told me that the boyfriend was tied up, that his companions had him, and that he hit the girl in the stomach who fell on her ass. She was very scared. He took off her pants. I told her what was going on with the boyfriend. He said he had first belted the boyfriend in the neck before hitting the girl, and when the boyfriend fell down, that's when his bodies took over. I asked Dave if she was a good route, and he said, yeah, she was. I told him if she was so good, why'd you hit the guy? Dave said, I'm a slut, I'll fuck anything. And he explained to me that when he got off the girl, one of his buddies took over. He started reading the girl and one of his buddies was written the boyfriend, so Dave decided he wanted to try the boyfriend too. When Secret Witness A was asked if Dave had explained why he killed them, he replied that he feared the Swedes would identify him from the mugshots, but also he couldn't bear the embarrassment of being accused of fucking a guy. So Secret Witness A, who had a conviction for murdering his girlfriend in Australia and was convicted for uh, trafficking of heroin in New Zealand, claimed that Dave had uh, gang raped and murdered the Swedes couple uh, with the companionship of four uh, buddies. So I have forgotten to quote one of our sources, the book Missing Pieces by the journalist Ian Wishart. Now I'm going to quote uh, directly from the book. This testimony was an emotional bombshell, and Detective Inspector John Hughes Hughes knew it. He had to get the jury to hate Tammy Harry enough to convict him guilty despite the quality of the evidence. End of quote. There's really no evidence that Tammy Harry was uh, hanging around with a, a crowd of four buddies in the peninsula already, and he denied have been accompanied by anyone so far. But most importantly, aside from his witness, uh, there was never found anything else about this alleged, uh, well, co-authors of uh, crime of the couple. Secret witness B would claim that while smoking a marijuana cigarette outside the prison's chapel with Tammy Harry, he had boasted that the police would never found the bodies of the couple because he had chopped them up and disposed of the parts. He would say that Tammy Harris said, allegedly, I chopped the fuckers up. So there's a lot of uh, vulgar mm. language in this. And Secret Witness C was the most descriptive, and perhaps for this reason, was the uh, testimony that was um, taken as more fruitful mm. by the jury. Secret Witness C would say, quote, He told me about the attacks he made on both the girl, Heidi, and the man. As for the man, he said that he had tied him up while he was attacking the girl, but he told me that he had also Donald ducked the man. Donald Duck being like uh, slang for sexually abusing. He told me about the attacks he made on both the girl, Heidi, and the man. As for the man, he said that he had tied him up while he was attacking the girl, but he had also told me that he had Donald ducked the man. That's a prison slang for sexual assault. I didn't really believe him when he told me that, but I know he's an animal. 
He told me that he had killed the man by smashing his head with a piece of wood. When he was talking about the attack on the girl, Heidi, he said that he had raped her several times. He said she was terrified. The first time he raped her was in the bush and that the man had been tied up when this happened. She told me, he told me that he had stolen a farmer's tent and had kept it for several days. He said that the other attacks on Heidi had taken place in the tent and that he had killed her by strangling her in that tent. He told me that he had then put the tent back at the farmer's house. He did not tell me exactly where the attacks took place, but that it was in the search area. He told me that he had almost been let loose by a couple who had come across. He did not say what they were doing when this couple came across them, except that the girl was sitting down. He didn't say which couple it was, I just thought he was talking about a man and a woman. At the time this couple came across them, he said Heidi was too terrified to say anything because the man was tied to an herbary tree, nearby tree. When he told me about disposing of the bodies, he told me that he had disposed of the two bodies at different times, the man first and Heidi a day or two late. He told me that he had kept Heidi for a day or two after killing the man. He told me that he had strangled Heidi. He told me that he had stolen an aluminium boat with a motor from a motor camp in front of a pub. He said that he had kept the boat for several days and he had used it to dispose the bodies and then return it. The testimony, the secret witness C, met many requirements to support the Crown's case against Tamiheri. Above all, it appears to support Cassidy's and Now's testimony that they had seen allegedly Tammy Harry at Crosswitz Clearing on April 8th with a blonde woman. This testimony was compelling and moving, and moving to the jury. And actually I read that one of the jurors mm. passed out after listening mm. to the witness. The trial lasted for three months before the jury was allowed to retire to consider and verdict. And before the jury was allowed. Before the jury was allowed to retire to consider the verdict, I wish the jury would have taken more seriously what uh, Justice Tomkins said. What did he say? There is no direct evidence to show that the defendant killed the Swedish couple. The Crown asks you to infer that he did from facts, which the Crown claims to have been duly provided, and therefore the Crown relies on what is called circumstantial evidence. It's like a rope made of several strands. One strand may not be enough to hold a weight, but several enough strands working together can. The same is true of the weight of evidence. There may be a combination of circumstances, none of which would raise a reasonable conviction, but on the whole may create a strong conclusion of guilt. The jury returned, and they found David Tamiheri guilty of the double murder of Heidi Bakonen and Hurran Hoglin. He was sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 10 years. David Tamiheri, in the meantime, meantime, continued to assert his innocence. Some 10 months passed since Tamiheri's conviction. Then on October the 10th, 1991, two pig hunters found human skeletal remains near Wangamata, which is about 70 kilometres from Thames. Forensic experts met the next day. On examining the area below the pelvis, they discovered an engagement ring. Upon cleaning it, the detectives saw that it was engraved. The engraving read, Heidi 2986, as in Heidi, September 2nd, 1986. Inspector Denby wrote in his report, 
The discovery of this ring led to immediate speculation that the remains were urban hoaglands. At 5.54am the next morning, Inspector Denby was contacting the detectives in charge of Operation Stockholm to relay his discovery. On analysis of the crime scene, it was soon determined to be Urban Hogland's domain based on his clothing and personal items. Investigators determined that Urban was either dead or unconscious when he was placed where he was found. As the police report noted, the body was dragged to the location where it was found, and it was dragged by the feet backwards. The legs were straight and fully extended. The two arms were extended in a forwards direction above the head, consistent with having been pulled backwards. While the arms were free, the face was downwards. Position in which his body was deposited suggests that his death had not been an accident. Analysis of the clothing found many stab wounds. The clothing was taken to the Adelaide State Forensic Laboratory. An expert in fiber damage called Harding found many stab wounds in Urban's clothing. What? It was determined that the damage to the left shoulder and neck was likely the result of three stab wounds with a knife in the area. The simplest scenario I can think of would be a frontal stabbing attack by a right-handed person. The weapon may have been a single-edged blade. The presence of multiple stab wounds suggests that it was a deliberate attack. When Urban's remains were reconstructed by a trio of pathologists, damage to the bones indicated a very violent death. The pathologist found cuts in the bones around the neck, indicating that his throat had been slit. A deep cut had been inflicted on the right side of the neck and passing backwards to the midline and had shaven a piece of bone. That this type of cut would have almost certainly had divided the spinal cord and would and could be interpreted as an anthem of decapitations. For reasons that are unknown, it seems like the assailant or the assailants attempted to decapitate it but gave up the idea and dragged Urban's body to its final resting place, where it remained for 18 months, decomposing in a shallow grave. It's not like it was buried six feet under. No, it wasn't. After all, it was in the middle of the bush. Mm. The fact that Urban's body was found approximately 70 kilometers away from where, according to the ground, the rapes and the double murder took place, naturally began to raise some suspicions. Now, while Urban's body had not been discovered by the time David Tomiheri was arrested, there was some physical evidence available that the Crown did not use to convict Tomiheri in the trial. There were many uh, search parties uh, made around Thames, Tararo Creek and Grosby's clearings. One, uh, many, some of them didn't find, uh, they couldn't find any sort of physical evidence, but there were some that they did find, and this wasn't used in the case against Tamiheri. On July the 29th, 1989, Graham Pierce, a search and rescue volunteer, went up to Crosby's clearing to search on his own. About 10 feet off the main track, Pierce found a blue jacket, which was later confirmed to be Heidi's. Pierce, in his statement, said, it was folded into a square, about 12 inches. It wasn't crumpled or anything. It was like you would find something folded in someone's backpack or similar. So when the area was searched further, a black and white photo and a wallet were found nearby. The photo was a portrait of Heidi and Urban, 
The wallet was embroidered with the letter H and contained 150 New Zealand dollars. And Heidi was verified to have withdrawn this from her bank account the week of her disappearance. Also, the fingerprints of Heidi and another unidentified person were found on it, and no traces of blood were found on either of the possessions. I think there's enough evidence to indicate that there were belongings of Heidi and Urban were found on July. So that means that David Tamiheri was already in prison by this point. Mm. He wasn't convicted, but he was in prison. Mm. So if he had done it, how come these belongings were found on July? Right? Mm. On December 1986... Randall Cornish, another volunteer who participated in the search, was exploring a barn near the Tararu Creek Road. Tararu Creek is uh, a couple of kilometers uh, north from Thames. Randall found an nylon tent in the back room in front of a pile of old sofas and chairs. I found an nylon tent and I took it outside and unrolled it and I saw Dick's Clean Sweden written on it. So it's really interesting to note mm. that uh, it seems like the police actually searched this barn, this area, on June of that year, but nothing was found. And it was actually later on confirmed that this tent belonged to the couple. When the tent was examined more closely, a small blood stain was found on the ceiling. In addition, a zigzag-shaped tear was found on the flap of the main opening of the store caused by a knife. This raised the possibility that the couple had been attacked by someone wielding a knife while they were inside the tent. However, no more blood was found on the floor of the store, implying that, if so, they were not cut or stabbed inside. Another discovery that was found in Urban's body was his watch on Hilles' wrist. Now, during the trial, the Crown claimed that this uh, watch that belonged to Urban had been given by Tamiheri to one of his sons, a testimony of a tenant that David had in his house that claimed to have seen Tammy Harry talking to his son and had given him a watch as a gift. But of course, this wasn't Urban's old. And this new evidence was also contradicted by the evidence given by Secret Witness B and Secret Witness C. Secret Witness B testified that David Tamihiri had confessed to him that the police would never find the bodies because he had cut them to pieces. Witness C's testimony was also inconsistent because Secret Witness C described that David had killed Urban with a piece of wood and then disposed of the bodies at sea. Almost five years after the trial, on August 25th, 1995, Secret Witness C made an affidavit. The affidavit was in relation to evidence he gave at the trial of David Tamihiri, in which he states that, I was approached by a journalist employed by New Zealand Television, who formerly taught Maori at Paramoro Maximum Security Prison, while I was a prisoner. The journalist told me that he knew two other prisoners who were secret police witnesses in the case against David Tamahere. The journalist told me that there were big offers for them and that if I was interested in being a secret witness, I should let him know and inform the journalist that I was interested. Shortly thereafter, he introduced me to Detective Sanderson, who I believe was stationed in Hamilton. Sanderson visited me at... Paramoromo, Maximum Security Prison. 
The meeting took place in the journalist's office just outside visiting hours. Sanderson told me that a sum of money up to $100,000 was available in case I decided to give a statement useful to the police in their prosecution in their prosecution of Tamahari. I was told that a watch belonging to the male Swede was given to Tamahari's son. I was told that Tamahari and the two Swedes were approached by vagrants, and at the time, the Swede was visibly distressed. I was also told that a body was thrown into the sea. Sanderson wanted me to say that all this was told to me by Tamahari. Sanderson said that he would then return with a typed statement for me to sign and that the officer in charge was former detective John Hughes, on whose behalf he was acting. Sometime later, Sanderson returned with a typed statement for me to sign. Again, this visit occurred outside of normal visiting hours. I saw him in the boardroom where the parole board hearings were being held. I refused to sign the statement, and to this day, I don't know who signed it. I was in my last 18 months of an 11-year sentence. I had no money to get out. It was the money I wanted. Even though I didn't sign the statement, I went along with the police plan to be a secret witness. Again, Sanderson emphasized the benefits he would get if he helped the police. He spoke of the money and the support detective John Hughes was willing to give me at the parole board hearing once I was eligible for that hearing. After Tamahiri was convicted as the alleged killer of the Swedes, John Hughes flew to Christchurch, where I'd been trans transferred, to support me at my parole hearing. I was released from prison on December the 14th, 1992. The fact is that Tamahiri never made any confession of any kind to me. In fact, Tamahiri always maintained his innocence. After serving 11 years in prison, I lost track of things when I got released, but I always intended to do something about the mistake. Eventually, I got in touch with Tamahiri's family, and making the statement, I realized that it may be compromising of my own interests. There is likely to be a pushback from other prisoners, police and prison officials, and other official persons may be equally unforgiving. They may exert pressure on me through their contacts in the justice system. Whatever consequences this statement may have for me personally, I'm more concerned about the interests of David Tamahiri. I no longer want to be associated with the fabrication of evidence used by the police in their case against David Tamahiri. So here we got... One of the main secret witnesses, explicitly mm -hmm. telling that uh, both the police and a journalist fed him information on the case mm -hmm. in order to get a conviction on David Tamiheri and uh, so he will get a benefit, which is what happened with the other two witnesses. Mm -hmm. They they had been promises. That's right. Promise a, a benefit for the trial, and that's mm -hmm. why. On his part, uh, Detective Sanderson denied offering money in exchange for his testimony in a rebuttal statement. Quote, At no time did I give him, witness C, the information in connection with the police investigation contained in his affidavit, nor did I offer him any inducement in money or other privileges to give evidence for the police. I am aware that it is alleged that I told Witness C that he would be supported at a parole board hearing, although 
I do not specifically recall making such a statement, I am aware that it is not uncommon for support to be given at parole board hearings when prisoners have been helpful to the police. Detective Inspector John Hughes was equally dismissive of the claims of Witness C, who stated it's absolute nonsense. Up until now, and despite Witness C's background, I believe he was sincere as to his motive for coming forward. He did not ask for anything special at the time. He was respectful to the Crown, Defence Counsel and everybody else and explained why he was there. He was sick and tired of hearing Tammy Harry citing what he had done. So what he, Detective Inspector John Hutz uh, is saying at this point that despite the background of the witness, the secret witness C, he had acted in good faith and he was quote-unquote sick and tired of hearing Tammy Harry brag about the alleged uh, brutal rape and murder of Urban and Haiti. But now on August 8th of 1996, in a further twist, witness C then recanted the affidavit and confession mm. and said that he had lied under oath, claiming that he, well, because he was a snitch, he had been uh, threatened, uh, he had received two death threat letters and that alleged uh, gang, uh, prison gangs were also threatening to kill uh, his family. In 2000, um, 2018, 28 years after testifying against David Amiheri, the identity and the crimes of the secret witness C was revealed. He was unmasked as Roberto Conchi Harris, and he was convicted of perjury for lying in the case of Demi, uh, David Tamiheri. With this unmasking, the nature of his crimes were also revealed, who carried several convictions, including double murder, and he was also... Uh, well, released, revealed to be a sex offender. So this guy was uh, claiming, well, he initially claimed to have partaken in the trial because he was sick and tired of hearing Tammy Harry brag about his crime. Now, this guy is as much as a sex offender and a murderer mm. as David Tammy Harry. I think it's safe to say that he only took part because he was promised by the police he mm. was going to get. Either uh, money or... More, exactly. most, most likely benefits from the justice department or the justice system. Yes. Might have received preferential treatment while he was in jail as well as a positive reference when he was sitting in front of the parole board. Well, to this day, uh, Roberto Conchi Harris is still in jail and in one occasion he um, just happened to be incarcerated the very same day he was let in parole because he exposed himself to a young girl. So we mm. now see the nature of the key witness that uh, mm. the ground, the New Zealand justice system had taken to mm. put Tammy Harry in jail. Remember that all this time, uh, Tamihei had been um, honest about mm. the other crimes he had committed, yeah. the rapes, uh, the murder of the sex worker, mm. but not the crimes of Urban and Haiti. So in 1991, when Urban's body was found, mm. um, that gave uh, or that appeared for him to give a boost for his cause, rightfully so. Tamihei, as his legal team, 
unsuccessfully petitioned the Court of Appeal to reopen Hedy and Urban's case. In May, the court ruled that the Crown's evidence provided compelling circumstantial evidence that David had murdered the couple, adding that there is nothing substantial in David Temiheri's defense claim that the skeleton revealed new evidence, although it contradicts mm. physical evidence and exactly. all the secret as the, testimony. As the justice uh, mentioned in his closing statement to the jury about the, uh, the analogy of a mm-hmm. rope yes. being made of strands of circumstantial evidence, a few of those strands were severed, weakening the sev rope. So I think that's, while yeah. new evidence wasn't applied, a lot of the circumstantial evidence was contradicted. So it did bring into question the entire jury's outcome. Yeah, I find it very outrageous that the Crown would say as far that the skeleton gave no new evidence. Mm. It's, uh, it is, it is outrageous. Yeah. Um, the police had asked, as a condition of David Tamiheri's parole, that he revealed the whereabouts of Heidi Pakonen's body. In all, in total, Tamiheri appeared before the parole board 14 times in a span of more than 20 years. And each time, he maintained his innocence. The report explains that. I mean, the parole board report says, quote, Previous board have had what has been described as vigorous and robust discussions with him, both about his denial and about where the body of one of the tourists, who has not yet been discovered. Mr. Tamikeri had been adamant in his denial, and we are convinced that there is no point in pressing these issues anymore. David Tamikeri was released on parole on the 15th of November of 2010. Nearly 20 years after he was convicted for the double murders and he had been given strict parole conditions, including that he must stay out the area where Heidi and Urban disappear, that is the Coromandel Peninsula, because uh, the parole assumes that if he gets uh, close to it, he, he might, might get rid of some evidence yeah. and um, making things clear. We don't feel a lot of sympathy for David Tamiheri. After all, he did murder a person and he did rape mm. two women and he admits on the crime. But it's like a huge, I think at least a huge fail on the justice on, system. And the justice system on the proceedings so far. So he's till the day free, but he is not considered legally innocent. Mm. He is just free on his parole. During his time in prison, according to issued to the parole board. Tamhiri did make some great strides in regard to his risk to society, stating that as a result of the counselling he received and with special assistance from the Department of Corrections and encouragement from his family, he undertook and completed the adult sex offender treatment program and he had gone from being a very closed person to being quite open about all aspects of his past life and is showing great and increased ability to manage his risk successfully. And he had also made progress with regard to his alcohol use, saying he now understands that he has to consider himself an alcoholic and that he will not drink again. 
on 2018 when the identity of the secret witness C was revealed as Roberto Conchi Harris and also his former crimes were also known. Uh, Tamiheri's attorney, Murray Gibson, filed two pardon applications and a petition, Governor General, to have the Court of Appeals re-examine the murder case. Gibson said he would approach Prime Minister Jacinda Arden for a pardon in the same way that Arthur Alan Thomas approached the former New Zealand Prime Minister for a pardon in 1979. But by now, if any of our listeners is not a Kiwi or they are not very familiar with the case of Arthur Alan Thomas and what his link may have to the case of uh, Hedy and Urban, well, we have to look a bit into the life and career of John Hughes, the senior detective who was in charge of the Operation Stockholm. Now, who was John Hughes? Well, Detective Hughes was no spring chicken when it came to homicide investigation in relation to the Swedish couple. He was involved in the investigation of the murder of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe, a Kiwi couple who were murdered on their farm in 1917 on June the 17th. Now, A.A. Thomas was a farmer who was a neighbour of the Crews and who was also convicted for being the alleged perpetrator of the couple's murder, although it later turned out that Thomas was framed by the New Zealand police who had, in fact, planted physical evidence in Thomas's home and... More precisely, had placed the police had placed shotgun shells mm-hmm. around Thomas's rural property to frame him for the murder of Harvey Jeanette. A.A. Thomas was later released and given a special pardon by the New Zealand state for the conviction he'd received. And now one of the one of the, it's said that among the police force, Detective John Hughes was known by a particular nickname that was given to him by his colleagues. He was called the gardener because of his habit of planting evidence at the scene of a crime. Hughes was never investigated of this allegation, despite other accusations of fabrication of evidence, which he was accused of, because he died in 2006 at the age of 73 due to cancer. Um, For some people, well, as it sometimes happens with uh, corrupted cops, uh, they held him as a top-notch yep. uh, detective, um, mm. despite all the accusations and the evidence, really, uh, against him. If we consider the possibility that Tammy, Tammy Harry is innocent, or at least is not guilty, which mm. legally it, it doesn't mean the same, if we consider that there wasn't enough evidence for him to be imprisoned, Where do the alternative paths, or what alternative we have to explain what happened to the Swedes, to Haiti and Urban? We know for sure that Urban was indeed murdered. In the meantime, the body and the body of Haiti, or Haiti herself, if we want to fantasize that she might be alive, was never found. So, what are the possibilities that Ian Wishart? in his book Missing Pieces, which is a very, very good uh, journalist uh, and investigation work. 
According to Wishart, we have three hypotheses. On the first one, a Rotorua man called uh, George Foley had escaped from a mental health institution and was living in Waihi, Coromandel, in 1989, the year where the disappearance of the couple uh, happened. While he was in Wahi, uh, George Foley attempted to attack a priest after his request to take money from the donation trade was refused. Apparently, it was a particularly uh, violent attack, and for reasons unknown, we don't have exactly what the diagnosis mm. of George Foley was, but there are some evidence that he had some ten violent tendencies. After this attack to this priest, uh, Fully fled to the Coromandel bush and ended up living near Wangamata, close to where Urban's body was found a couple of years afterwards. Fully was described as looking very much like David Tamiheri. Bill Davis, um, a local who knew Foley from going to school with his children, said that the weeks later Fully reappeared in the bush. He approached his home in Waitanga wearing a green army sleeping bag and he would say, quote, He was a little agitated, quite agitated. He had mood swings. He looked like David Tamiheri. If you put them 15 feet apart, you would think they were related. If you got a picture of Hua and put them side by side, they would look familiar, end quote. Bill Davis went on to say that Foley had threatened his son with a baseball bat and had stolen his car. He then proceeded to go to Auckland. Apparently, he had an accident. There was a truck parked on the side of the road, and they had spoken to the driver of the truck, who said that Foley was coming straight at him, that he knew exactly what he was doing. He was coming straight at his car, waving his arm out of the window, like he was trying to kill himself. He was in trouble, and he lost his arm on that accident. In addition... It appears that uh, George Foley confessed to have committed the crime of the Swedish couple to his mother. His mother confessed his son's confession to the Davis family, some uh, neighbors of them, and the Davises tried to contact Operation Stockholm, but the police told the Davis that they weren't interested in the lead because they already had David Tamiheri as a prime suspect. A second option is there is evidence that there is other type of criminal activity in the Coromandel uh, area, which is... Cannabis growing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Cannabis, uh, the growth and cultivation of cannabis. Now, the Coromandel bush is well known as a location for off-the-grid mm-hmm. cannabis farms. And as the cultivation and consumption is still in, illegal in New Zealand, up including up to today. Mm-hmm. It, it's hypothesized that the Swedes could have stumbled up across some criminal activity in the bush and were possibly killed because, you know, they were witnesses. And a third option, which would, uh, would explain uh, why uh, Hedy, or at least Hedy's body, was never found to today, is that she might have been abducted. And there seems to be some evidence or some lead to support this. Uh, well, Ian Wishart found himself or discovered a couple of Kiwis, John and Mary Heaven, whom operated a campsite on Kawau Island in the Harauki Gulf. The Heavens claimed to have met Urban and Heidi one night sometime in the summer of 80, uh, 889. So according to what they said, 
it was raining heavily that night, and the heavens offered Katie and Urban their living room to sleep so they wouldn't get so understandably. That night, the two couples had dinner together, and Heidi and Urban left the next day. Months later, when the disappearance was already confirmed in May 1989, the heavens would claim that they saw Heidi without Urban, but in the company of a thin Pakea man. Pakea is the name for white uh, or European descendant persons in Maori. In a letter obtained by Ian Wishart about the incident, they saw Heidi Pakonen near their house just as the police were beginning to search for them in Coromanda. The heavens live almost 200 kilometers from Coromanda. Heidi was struggling to lift a very heavy backpack onto her back. The straps were up to her elbows and she was clearly distressed. Um, I'm quoting. My friend's wife stepped forward to help her lift to help her lift the backpack, but the man growled it, don't touch it. Then he kept walking and impatiently motioned for her to follow. She looked terrified and kept scanning the surrounding bushes as if expecting something. My friends were convinced it was Heidi and called Detective Hughes, who was leading the investigation. Detective Hughes thanked them for the information, but assured them that it could not be Heidi, as they were sure she was in Coromandel. The police never contacted my friends again regarding the sighting. The heavens further added that they suspected a certain local underworld character. However, the heavens further added that they suspected a certain local underworld character. There's not much, there's no more information about this alleged. Mm -hmm. And even though this couple knew in first person, the detective inspector John Hughes completely dismissed the lead, well, basically because he didn't... Uh, it didn't fit in in the theory that they already had. In 2017, a bushman called Alan Ford found three bags of women's clothing on the Wangamata Peninsula, which is where Urban's body was found. Mm. And he would say, I actually felt quite uncomfortable. It's not often you come across women's leggings in a plastic bag in the bush. Ford said then that he handed the clothes to the police thinking that it might be Hades. The police dismissed this idea and two months later destroyed the evidence. Green Pierce, the man who had found Hades' jacket in 1989 and who was a volunteer in the search and rescue team, uh, would, many years later, along with his wife, uh, host a backpacker hostel around the area in hopes that they could provide some sort of... Uh, yeah, for safe, backpackers. Yeah, a safe haven so that... And as a reminder of the disappearance of the couple, another backpacker hut was built in Crosby's clearing in 2010. And near the side, there is a monument that was placed in honor of the memory of Heidi Pakonen and Urban. But what about David Amiheri's life? We already mentioned that he is uh, living a free man uh, since 2010. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so to speak, because legally speaking, <clears throat> he's still considered uh, responsible. He was only left on parole. parole. Mm. Well, these days he can be found sitting in his front yard of his wooden house in West Auckland. And he tells a New Zealand newspaper that he spends most of his time doing odd jobs and carving traditional Maori wood sculptures. Uh, Tamahiri admits his criminal record counts against him, 
he was awaiting conviction for a rape while he was charged with Hoglan and Pekonen's murders and had served a previous murder conviction. Regarding his previous crimes, he says, I don't mind doing for times for things I've done, and most of the time I spent in prison I deserve. That's not what I'm complaining about. What I'm complaining about is that what happened in the investigation for this murder, that should never have happened and should never be allowed to happen. It's quite possible the true murderer or murderers were never found and we will never find out because the clues of possible leads and um, evidence was either has either been destroyed or has been ignored and the passage of time would have eroded those memories and that evidence and that any possibility of acting to have a a solution or an outcome have well and truly you know that time has well and truly passed so I think no one is going to get a or no one there is no good outcome unfortunately for this particular crime I mean, unless you choose to believe that David Amichere did it, which I think he has some good points on his side. Probably a good reminder that even if a person had committed horrible crimes before or he is a good suspect for a crime, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that he should be in jail for stuff no. for that he didn't commit. And being him someone that is a sex offender, and I myself... Being a survivor of sexual abuse, I don't feel sympathy for rapists, but I cannot help looking at this and thinking he got very fucked up by the police. Mm. And because Detective Senior John, the the gardener, huge, was so hell-bent on getting him into jail Mm. that they willingly ignore a lot of inconsistencies and evidence just mm-hmm. to put him in jail and pretend that they were doing their real job and satisfy the media because this was understandably a very big, uh, a very big case. Mm-hmm. As it sometimes happens when you have victims whom are tourists and white people. Also, we can't stress again how useful the book by Ian Wishart called Missing Pieces was um, in providing us with lots of other leads to track down and bringing light to some of the inconsistencies and well once again thanks for listening to a history of evil men and once again you can find this podcast on spotify on itunes and most of the podcast applications applications also on youtube and you can follow us on our social media on instagram Mm -hmm. history evil men Facebook and we have our Twitter and we have a Patreon page. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash a history of Yes. And we'll once again go out with the soothing tones of musician spectacular Steph Animal. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Mm-hmm.